cool. Well, Alex, thank you for uh, thanks for joining us and uh, coming for for a visit. Glad to be here. Yeah. So why don't we um, why don't we maybe get started with just like a quick intro into who you are, what you do, and and we'll take it from there. Sure. Sure. So uh, obviously, Alex Almonte, um, regional sales manager for Western Aircraft in Boise, Idaho. I've been in aviation since. Um, well, if you caught when I started college, I started college in 2003 at Embry-Riddle in Daytona Beach. Okay. I, I kind of consider myself to have started in aviation at that point because sure. I went to an aviation-focused college. Um, graduated in 08, went to work as an air traffic controller with the FAA for a while, um, found that position to not be for me. Okay. <laughs> um, I uh, spent a lot of time looking out the window wanting to be closer to the airplanes, and uh, I've wanted to find a way to make that happen. So, um, I was back up in the Orlando area and I was around the Sanford airport. There were some smaller MROs around there. I just started going around and pitching a resume out to those guys. Hey, I believe I can help your company grow by bringing airplanes in. And this is, this is my plan, right? Um, I started with a, uh, a company called Sentinel aviation. there, really small, um, 145 repair station, just basically a, a principal that owned an airplane that purchased an MRO so that he'd have a place to have his airplane maintained. Okay. Um, it was previously Sunjet, which were the guys that had the Payne Stewart accident. Um, so trying to get customers to go there was difficult because um, it was the same Sunjet facility and all the things there in Sanford. So that stigma was still a kind of in the building, even okay. though none of the personnel were still there, but trying to convince customers of that was was a difficult task. Sure. Um, fast forward probably about 12 months from that point that I started with that company, um, Starport across the way um, was having some struggles uh, with getting airplanes to come in. Sentinel decided that they wanted to close their doors. We auctioned everything off with Steve Starman a few weeks after the, or a few days after MBAA Orlando in 2011 or 12. I'm sure the viewers will, will bite me. <laughs> at a, my, my dates aren't, you know, 100%. The fact checkers are going to get yeah, you. Yeah, they're going to get in there and get me. Oh, and MBAA Orlando was 11. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, so Steve Starman came in and auctioned off everything that we had in the, in the facility. And I couldn't believe the price that things were going for in that auction. I mean, come to find out if you wanted to get Tron Air Jacks or Huff Carts or any of those things, there's like a six month lead time. Sure. And if you need that stuff for your facility, you want it now, now, right? So people were paying retail price for used equipment. We blew the number out of the water that we needed to give back to the investors. I mean, that was phenomenal. Um, because we were closing that company, the people from Starport came over and they were looking to buy some of the equipment. We had a conversation. I was like, Hey, I'm going to be done here. Maybe I come over, have a conversation with you guys about doing sales for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I did that five years later, um, hangers full of airplanes, constant comes in and purchases Starport. I go to Constant for, I was with Constant for about two and a half years. Um, one of the senior leaders that was at Starport with me had made the transition over to Western Aircraft in Boise. Um, I was having the conversations with him about Western. Um, and uh, I took the opportunity to go out and see the facility. And I'm really glad that I did because that's home now. Okay. Um, 
if you had asked me three years ago when I'm living in Orlando, Florida, <laughs> would you move to Boise, Idaho? I uh, I would probably check your temperature and say I think you got a fever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know that you want to do that. Um, but I got off the plane there at like 11 o'clock on a Wednesday or Thursday night in Idaho. It's pitch black. I'm like, my thoughts were that this is a one horse potato town. I didn't know anything about Boise, Idaho, really. Um, obviously, all the stigmas are there or whatever. Um, the morning comes, I, br- I drive up to the facility, and I think I had in my mind a picture of what was going to be there, and it blew me away. I mean, the campus that we have in Boise at that time was incredible, mm-hmm. and now it's even more incredible with our expansion that we have going on up there. Um, it's It's interesting. You always have, for, for me anyway, you have these ideas in your mind about things, and then it takes very little to change that right yeah because it wasn't founded in any kind of facts it Mm -hmm. was only like a perception that i had based on things i had heard over the 30 years of my life right um so so what what makes uh what makes boise a, a special place for you well, I think the people of Boise would be really mad, first of all, <laughs> that I'm even here on the Boise soapbox um, because it's such an incredible place. We like to try and keep it secluded and um, basically cut off from the rest of the world. But mm. that's that's become really impossible with, uh, I think, the words out on Boise. Um, mm. In three years of me being there, real estate's doubled in price. Um, population's doubled. Uh, it's a, it was never designed to be that large of a city. Right. So there's some growing pains that are happening there with infrastructure and some other things. Um, but outside of that, the people of Boise, Idaho, incredible. Um, the nature and the landscape and just the great outdoors of Idaho is, is incredible. Best snow in the entire world at Brundage and Tamarack, which are right up in McCall, we have Sun Valley, which was the first ski resort in in the United States, or maybe even in the world. I'm not sure about that. Fact checkers, you guys can yeah <laughs> can get me on that one too. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, aside from that, what you have in Idaho, and not just with Western aircraft, I mean, really with a lot of things, is the drive and the determination of the people that work there. So you get a lot of these guys that grew up on farms and ranches and other stuff. They're up at 4 a.m. out feeding the animals, doing all this other stuff. These guys really only know one way, and that's to get this stuff done, right? Mm-hmm. They're hardworking. They're they're dedicated. And again, that's not just at Western. That's like if you called an HVAC guy in the Valley, you're going to yeah. get the same response. And I was kind of blown away by that because here in Florida, trying to get somebody to come over and work on your house or do any, I mean, it's a, it was a real challenge, yeah, right? Sure. So like I was expecting kind of a similar status quo there and that's not the case at all, at all. I was really impressed. Yeah. Well, now I'm sold. So let's let's pack up the studio and uh, <laughs> and head to Boise. Now we're we're from you know I'm from New York originally, and you know I've been down in Florida for I guess this is 12 years now, and um, I look at Florida almost the same 
way that maybe you're looking at at Boise in, mm-hmm. in some ways, just because um, Florida is way different than than New York from, you know, obviously weather, environment. I'm big into fishing. So like oh, yeah. being on the water is, is is huge for me. But also doing business down here is, you know, it's a more business friendly environment. But this is another place that people are running to um from places up north so you know real estate's been crazy here Mm -hmm. um but yeah you're right getting somebody to even come and you know fix a sink for you is like you know forget about it it's Mm -hmm. it's really tough to to get people in um but so you know backing up a little bit so you moved out so you've been in boise for three years now Mm -hmm. and and been with western Tell me what 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 drew drew you to Western um, as, as a company, and and maybe you could tell us a little bit about you know Western, what you guys do, what you specialize in, and uh, and we can go from there. Sure. The big draw for me was it was a smaller company that. So I would be when I came on board there, I was the second Jet RSM. That was at the company. Okay. We now we now have three uh, Jet RSMs. Um, I saw an opportunity to grow new territories that the company wasn't previously working in, um, bring new customers into the Western aircraft fold. I had been keeping my eye on them for several years while I was still working at Constant um, because I I known the senior leader that had gone there and I kind of wanted to see, Hey, how are things going for him over there? You know? Um, and, uh, I just knew that there was a place that I would have an opportunity to make a mark, um, and help grow a business. I knew that there were plans for this expansion that Mm -hmm. we, that we just, uh, that we're mostly completed with. We're still in the process of it, but the hangar portion is, is done. We'll get more into the expansion here in a few minutes. Sure. Um, I just I saw the plan that was laid out in front of me and I really liked the plan. I liked the people that were there. I liked the quality of the work that was coming out of there. I'd talked to a bunch of customers that had previously brought airplanes there because for me as an RSM, it's important that the quality of the work that's done by the facility that my name is attached to is the highest quality of work that can be possibly achieved in the industry, right? I mean, you have a company's brand, but then as a salesperson, you have your own individual brand, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, sometimes the shirts change with the companies that you're yeah. at, but I mean, you're walking around an MBAA or at any of these shows. I mean, people recognize you for who you are and they say, oh, hey, you're with, oh, you're with Western now. Hey, that's awesome. Tell me about it. Right. Great. You know, so I can continue to develop my relationships and give my customers a phenomenal world-class service center to bring their airplanes to. It's kind of really a match made in heaven. And, and that's what I saw that we could make. And I was excited about that. And, you know, being younger in my early 30s, I was like, this is a place where I could live out the rest of my career and make home and um, and just continue to grow a business. And yeah. that's what that's what we're doing out there. And, you know, it's not it's definitely not just me doing that. I mean, we have a team of I want to say it's up to a couple hundred people there in Idaho now um, that they're all got the same goal in mind. You know, let's grow this business. Let's provide the most high quality service that we can, um, both for the airplane and for the customer. I mean, yeah, if you're in 
aviation maintenance, you are an aircraft maintenance, but you're also in customer service, right? So sure. that's that's a really um, important factor. Yeah, in all those and things. What type of what type of aircraft do you guys kind of specialize in? Yeah, so um, for so Western Aircraft's been in business for sixty years. It started out as the Morrison Knutson Flight Department. Um, they're the guys that built the Hoover Dam. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Morrison Knutson was a massive, um, construction company and it, the need for, so it started in 57, the need for aircraft maintenance was there on the field. Um, and they just, they were like, let's start an MRO yeah, sure. to fill this need. Um, and you know, 60 years later, it's a massive facility. Um, we're, so we have, uh, I got to kind of look at the list here of how many things we have, um, <laughs> because it's very, very large. Um, so we serve customers across the United States, Canada, Mexico, and Europe. Okay. Um, routinely have airplanes coming in as far as Isle of Man. I mean, that's a 12 hour flight yeah, to Idaho sure. from Isle of Man. People are probably going to listen to this podcast and go, why would you bring an airplane 12 hours to Isle of Man? And, you know, I'm going to answer those questions for you over this podcast. Yeah. So keep listening and we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give you the answers here. Um, so the, the bread and butter, I would say the core of our business, um, we're, we're a Pilatus authorized service center where, um, we're King Air Kodiak service center. We're a Falcon authorized service center. Um, we do a lot with Cessna Citation. We recently expanded into Gulfstream probably about three years ago. Okay. Actually, it would be four years ago now. Um, focused on the G4, G5, G550, um, and G650. The main part of the reason why the new hangar was built um, is to have us continue expanding into that large cabin aircraft. Um, and... Uh, the new hangar's got sky cranes, a five-ton sky crane overhead, heated floors. It's 53,000 square feet. Um, I believe that we can put five or six, I don't remember specifically, but five or six Gulfstream 650s in that hangar at one oh, time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, very, very large footprint. Sure. The other thing that's awesome, so Idaho is a little bit colder, right? With the heated floors, we can open the doors and do like a hanger reshuffle, close the doors, and within 20 or 30 minutes, you can feel the temperatures right back. It's comfortable again. That's awesome. You know, so it doesn't take forever for the hanger to heat up. Yeah. Um, the summer times are pretty temperate there, so mm -hmm. like we don't really need too much in the AC department. Right. Um, and it's so dry in Idaho that even when it's like 30 degrees – it doesn't feel cold out. Mm -hmm. So it's 60 here this morning and I walked out of the hotel and I was freezing. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> all right. And I'm, you know, I'm a, it's not like I have shorts and a t-shirt yeah. on. So, um, the expansion though, we're really, we're really excited about the expansion. It was, um, it was a $17 million expansion. Um, and, uh, it's, it's in, it's being done in two phases. Phase one was the fifty three thousand um, square foot hangar portion, okay. and then the forty thousand square feet of back shop space and office space that's built off is is.
pretty close to being done. Um, I was up in there the other day. Uh, we were doing a conference call, and I intentionally walked <laughs> in my office and did the conference call from my office just to be, you know, the first person to get in, a, to get in yeah. there and, and have a conference call done from the office. Um, <laughs> but um, gorgeous facility and. It's so large up in there that you almost need a row map. I mean, I I get like almost get lost up inside this new hangar because there's just hallways everywhere and office space and it's really really nice. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, and, and so I'm I'm assuming you know you're you're do, doing this expansion to accommodate, you know, you guys are growing as a as a company, but mm-hmm. I know that there's also especially right now you know, huge demand for aircraft maintenance. And from what I'm hearing, it, it's tough to to get in uh, to facilities, you know, uh, parts are tough to come by right now. How is like the last, I guess, you know, really two years now impacted, you know, the aircraft maintenance business? Yeah. So, um, you know, initially early on, we didn't know, we didn't know. Right. So mm-hmm. it was, I think there was a scary time in there for everybody where we're like, you know, are these airplanes going to keep showing up for maintenance right. or, or is everything going to come to Shut a down. halt? Yeah. You know, we saw that transportation became, you know, a quote unquote essential business. Mm-hmm. That was, that was really positive. I think for the industry as a whole, sure. Um, to make sure that we didn't come to a grinding halt and people need their airplanes. I mean, I liken people's Gulf streams to, you know, Cindy's Honda Civic, right? You know, like she needs a Honda Civic to get to the store to get her stuff done, and Mr. CEO needs his Gulfstream to be able to go around and do his business, right? So, you take away someone's airplane, you take basically taking away their their car mm-hmm. on a grander scale, right? right? Um, I don't know that our business or any of our competitors' business ever really slowed down. Yeah. In talking to my friends at the other network, MROs, everyone's kind of in the same position. Mm. Manpower is is limited because it's a talent thing. Sure. Um, and I have to say, like my whole life growing up, my parents, my friends' parents, everybody that I knew, the the message was always do well in school, go to college, right? And if you if you were going to a trade school, that was kind of like looked down upon a little bit, right? right? But those guys are the most highly skilled technical employees that you could possibly have. I mean, they're working on a machine that's made to help humans do something we were never designed to do, mm-hmm. right? Which is fly through the air. Yeah. I mean, I want that guy to be the most highly skilled guy ever. You're going to work on my BMW. Yeah, I want you to do a good job on my BMW, but if it breaks, I can pull it over. Right. You know, like this, somebody leaves an oxygen line loose or whatever, you never know, right? So you always want like the highest quality guys that you could possibly have to do that job. Well, the highest quality guys have a, a cost to do to them, right? Sure. I mean, every business has to look at that and there's that fine balance. And I, I can't, I can't really talk to that side of our business because mm-hmm. I'm not involved in that side of the uh, business operations yeah. side of it. Yeah, I just know that in the out in the industry that there's that there's a challenge right now with fine and text, and I think it's something we've been talking about for ten plus years. I mean, sure. I can remember going to MBAA ten years ago and they were talking, "Hey, we're going to have a real problem with pilots and with techs," mm-hmm. and now that day is here. 
right? But at the same time, we have like almost double the airplanes out there flying around and they're still making new ones. Right. And the fleet is continuing to grow. And I mean, you don't just throw an airplane away when it's, yeah. when it gets to be old, you continue to refurbish it and make it new. And, um, I mean, that's another side of our business that is absolutely flourishing, which is the, 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 I guess I would call it the overhaul mm-hmm. side of the business with, yeah. um, with our interior shop and our wood shop and our, I mean, our cabinetry is just unbelievable. It looks so incredible. I mean, um, it's art. Yeah. I mean, you see the way that these guys do these stitches and they're, they're just so meticulous with, with all the seams and, and the attention to detail is incredible. And I always walk through there and, and I always, it just always, it always amazes me, right? Because it's something that I know I can't personally do it. And I'm really thankful to have a team of guys that are so skilled that can do it because basically I can look at my customers and I can say, Hey guys, look what we can do. You know, I can say we, Mm -hmm. even though it's not, Sure. You know, I can help, I can help you achieve that for your airplane, sure. you know, um, the new, the new hangers and have a really nice, um, like showroom in there. I know our interior shop manager is extremely excited to have some of the space that he's going to get in the new hanger. Um, avionics is going to be, I mean, just everything is elevated with this new facility. Very cool. Really, really cool. Yeah. I guess back to your, uh, back to your point just about the, the talent and the personnel. And I was, uh, I was just speaking to uh, a president of one of the aviation schools, uh, in the country. We're probably going to have him on in, in, in the next few weeks, but just talking about that, that talent and trying to bring more, um, exposure just to the general public about the opportunities that are out there. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, your, your point on about, you know, I grew up and it was like, okay, you're going to, you know, do well in high school. You're going to go to college. You're going to, you know, you know, follow like these kind of steps. Right. And I think that, you know, for the, the younger people out there understanding that there's such a demand for these skilled jobs mm-hmm. and we're starting to see the, the pay, uh, and the rates for these skilled jobs go up just mm-hmm. because there's so much demand right and um, you know sinking you know whatever it is a hundred or 200 grand in some cases into an education that doesn't promise you anything at all right is um, is maybe not the not the best route and um, there's opportunities out there and like I was saying you know talking with, uh, the president of the school, they actually have now accelerated AMP and pilot programs. And I'll let him dig into the, you know, tell the details right. on that. But um, it's cool to see, you know, there's now, there's more, you know, I think people are talking louder about it. There's there's organizations that are getting involved in a different level to try and fill these fill these gaps in, in these spaces. Um, but now, right now, with the demand being so high, and there's plenty of options out there for, uh, for you know, whether it's maintenance or interiors or overhauls, things like that. How are you guys kind of positioning Western, you know, from a, a competitive standpoint? How do you guys, you know, kind of stack up against some of the other options out there? So geographically. If you look at the country where where Western's located in Boise, Idaho, there's not 
very many options for aircraft maintenance. Mm. The the country gets really vast once you start getting out past Kansas. Sure. And I didn't I I honestly until I drove 40 hours across the country. <laughs> I, I truly did not realize that. I mean, I knew it was a big country. Yeah. Um, but it's a really big country. Mm. Um, and when you get out that way, support gets to be difficult unless you know the right people to get you support. Right. Um, I mean, we have full MRT for, for our customers and we pretty much cover, I would say the entire Western United States. Now those guys are strategically located in, in various cities and you can go on our website for more information about our about our mrt program mm -hmm. um, and we actually have a dedicated mrt line for which is one eight five five mrt tech okay um so people can literally dial that number 24 7 um airplanes got a situation needs fixed and we can dispatch uh, a tech to that to that airplane and get you going again um we also have a really large you know parts warehouse Sometimes it doesn't always work out this way, but sometimes we can partially troubleshoot something over the phone with the customer. Sometimes we have that part in stock. Sometimes we can get that part on that truck with the tech to your airplane right then and there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. Yeah. You know, and, and if you want to see if there's a possibility of us doing that, you got to call the number and see, and get somebody on the phone and, and see if we can help you guys out. But chances are pretty good that we're going to be able to help, help out. Okay. Um, we have a dedicated MRT manager now. He's focused on that. He's growing that side of the business too, which is really good. MRT has been awesome. Yeah. Our customers love the additional support that they get from, you know, they can come in for a scheduled maintenance event, but then, hey, you know, outside of scheduled maintenance, we care to make sure that your airplane right. continues to fly, you know, and if, if you have an issue, you call us up and we'll get you flying again. Sure. Um, and I think that level of support is is super critical to a customer. I don't want my customer calling my competition to help them. Right. I want to be the one call that you have to make that'll always get you fixed, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's sure. scheduled or unscheduled. Sure. That's really our goal. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think strategically, this company is really well positioned to serve customers for the long foreseeable future mm -hmm. this expansion is it was needed we were really out of we were really out of hangar space up there mm -hmm. um and because because of where we are in the country you know we get a lot of airplanes that are coming up there um it's just it's a great place to be yeah i mean i know i sound like i'm drinking a lot of the kool-aid <laughs> um but I, I highly encourage people to come check it out. I mean, it's just, it's an awesome spot. For sure. Yeah. And so now you, you've been there for a few years. Yep. You're, you've spent most of your career in aviation mm -hmm. selling, right? Correct. And yep. so how, you know, I, I talk with a lot of salespeople from uh, whether it's maintenance to charter to aircraft sales to software or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they're always looking for kind of advice on, you know, what's the, how do I effectively sell, especially in this industry? And you came into it as a pretty young guy, right? I did. You know, how, how's that journey been for you and how have you approached, you know, getting into an industry that's really technical 
it's like you said, you know, CEOs, aircraft, they're putting a lot of trust in you to take mm -hmm. care of them properly. What's What's been your kind of approach and, and do you have kind of like maybe a recipe for success in sales? Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of touched on it a little bit. It's that trust. Mm -hmm. um, it takes it takes time to earn to earn trust, right? Trust isn't just given; it's earned. Yeah. And when someone gives you that trust, what you do with it is is hypercritical, right? I always I always find an honor for somebody to trust me, regardless of what that situation is, right? And I always know that there's something delicate there, right? I have your trust. And I, and I need to take good care of that, right? This is a really, really small industry, okay? Right. Everybody here in this room, we've all known each other in one form yeah. of life, different shirts, yeah, right? Sure. But same industry, right? And the name that you have for yourself is super important. So I knew early on that I didn't know what I didn't know, right? So I buried myself in like the chapter fives for all the aircraft that we were working on. I just started reading aircraft maintenance manuals. I mean, I'm not an I'm not an AMP, right? But I've worked on cars really long mm -hmm. my whole life. My family had an automotive shop growing up. They still do. Um so mechanically, I understand how things work. I can read a aircraft maintenance manual and understand more. More for me as a sales guy, it was more about learning where the cycles were for the maintenance events. And then once I learned where the cycles for the maintenance events were, then I started digging down and breaking down those events. So I would say, okay, a 12 month has, you know, these items in it, and these are going to be every 12 months. And I just tried to educate myself as best I could. Sure. And, and I, and I learned really, really early on that it's okay to not know the answer. Right. So don't BS people. I yeah. think that's the biggest thing that salespeople do is they always want to have every answer to every question. And that's not, that's not the answer. Right. The, the best answer, if you don't have the answer is, Hey, that's a phenomenal question. No one's ever asked me that <laughs> <Yeah>. before. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to go research that, or I'm going to go ask my team. I have great resources back in Boise. Let me go ask them. I'm sure they've heard of it or whatever. And I'll get back to you with an answer. That's a far more valuable answer to somebody because they know when you come back with an answer that it's a legitimate answer. Right. You yeah. know, I found that, you know, you're talking to, especially for people that are coming from outside of the industry. And at this point, we need more and more people from outside the industry we definitely do. to come in. And so, um, you know, not everybody that you're going to be talking to is going to be a, you know, a 20 year veteran in, in this industry. Right. And so for people that come in, understand that the people that you're talking to can pick apart what you're saying. And if you don't know what you're talking mm -hmm. about, um, it's not good. Right? right. And so obviously you're not going to know everything. You need to take the time to dig into it and really understand Who's the customer? What's their operation? What's important to them? And really try and educate yourself on as much of that as possible, but yes. always know that you're not going to know everything. Right. And so instead of giving a half-assed answer or, or, or pretending, it's much better to be upfront and say, you know what? We haven't encountered that before. Let me call, you know, let me call back to the office, get that answer for you and, and, and keep it moving yep. from there. Um, I've found that that 
just building relationships. There's so much stronger relationships built in that way. Right. Um, and so, and before we were talking a little bit about, you know, kind of building those relationships and maybe talk to me a little bit about how you've done that and how you've kept customers over the years. Well, I mean, when you're, when you're in the aircraft maintenance, you're always going to have human factors involved, right? Mm -hmm. You're always going to have a human interacting with a machine. There's always things that can go on there, right? Whether it's an a human working with an airplane or a car or any of the things you have, you have inherent human factors involved, right? Sure. There's always going to be a certain level of, I don't want to say mistakes because we have so many processes in place to mitigate mistakes. Um, that the, the, the number of them that I see at this company is so negligible. Like mm -hmm. there's, so few, I mean, people, people make mistakes, they're humans, right? But like, we have a lot of really solid processes that make sure that that doesn't happen here. Right. Um, but in my previous lives, the way, the way that, um, is honestly just owning stuff, right? If a mistake happens, yeah. don't try to cover it up, make the first phone call. Once you have a plan to the customer. Sure. And, and say, hey, Mr. Customer, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. It, we didn't expect this. And this is what we're going to do to make it better. Right. And and we're really sorry that it happened. And this is, this is the solution. Mm. I haven't had to have that conversation at right. this new company, which has been f a breath of fresh air. And that's not to say anything about the previous places that I've been at because they were all phenomenal companies too with phenomenal team members and all the things. Just different processes and procedures, you mm -hmm. know, different organizational ways the companies were run. Sure. Um, and uh, the other thing that I really love about Western is because it's a smaller company, like in the off chance that there's ever something that's not correct, I can literally w walk three doors down to my boss or the GM's office and they're always there. I can close the door. I can say, this is what's going on. And it's fixed. Yeah, it's how done. are we going to take care of it? It's done. It's yeah. fixed. It's a it's a non-issue. Sure. Versus like some of these larger companies where even the employee is just a number. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you even have a voice in that company to be able to rectify problems for your customer? I feel like that would be a really challenging mm -hmm. issue for me as a salesperson, and I didn't want to have that. Yeah, sure. So because this was a smaller company, I knew I would have the ability to pivot in situations like that. And like I said, thankfully, I haven't had to do that. Sure. Um, but I know a hundred percent with confidence that if there were something that were to happen, it would be rectified immediately. I mean, sure. the pivot would happen really quickly. Um, cool. so yeah. And I guess, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a pivot, but you know, I worked with a lot of directors of maintenance in the past for whether it was like corporate flight departments, or charter operations. Um, and you know, as as we as we start to see this workforce shift, and there's there's people that have been in, let's say, a director of maintenance position for the last twenty or thirty years, and now you know there's people that are now moving into into these new roles, and maybe they're AMPs and they've been working on aircraft, but they haven't they haven't necessarily um, gone through the process of like going out and shopping their maintenance and working with facilities. And that's 
that's really a completely different process than just working on the aircraft yourself. And so I guess for somebody stepping into that, you know, role and now responsible for taking their aircraft somewhere, any advice for how you go about, you know, what, what like go about, you know, preparing that work order, getting the right quotes, you know, really digging into making sure where you go is going to be the right place for you. I'm, I'm really glad you asked me that question, Greg, because if there's anything that it, that people can take away from this conversation, um, DOMs in the last probably 10 years have had an advantage where they kind of, they could shot, they could look for the places that were light and then they could get a deal on maintenance right because mm -hmm. there was availability to be able to get the airplanes in sure that narrative is completely shifted in the last three years mm -hmm. there there if you're not scheduling your maintenance events at least six months in advance you're doing your owner a major disservice you're backing yourself into a corner and you're honestly putting your job at, at risk mm -hmm. okay because if you're if you're looking for bids far out in advance you have far more control over pricing. You have far more control over scheduling and availability of scheduling. You have far more availability for like parts lead times. Yeah, sure. You know, like I can think of a few projects in previous lives where, you know, things tried to happen on a rush for like a CMS or an, in, in, an internet install or something. And, mm -hmm. you know, the project ended up going long because parts couldn't be acquired in time and all the other, like the planning couldn't happen. Right. And, and some of that is, is on that MRO, but majority of that's on the customer. But as an MRO, you're never going to say to the customer, hey, <laughs> this is on you. Like, no, we always just try to do the best the we best can, you can do. to make it happen. Right. And then we say along the way, hey, you know, you're going to, you're probably going to incur some excessive downtime or whatever. But like planning is so, so critical as a customer. Yeah. Um, and the larger that your event is, the further that you need to be planning that out. Like if you have a Falcon C check, you should be one year out on scheduling that job. Yeah. You should if you're a year out for a C check, you should at least be having a conversation with a couple of the service centers that you're considering taking that airplane to. Mm. Um Yeah, uh, and I, yeah. I think the other thing that I've seen too, this has happened a lot, and I'm sure you've seen this in the past is you know, customers that you know you're the you're the service center. You're going you're going to take care of that maintenance event. Everybody out there is going to do the best job that they can for that maintenance event. Um, but you're not the operator of the aircraft, and so you don't know you know everything about that aircraft. I'm sure the customers that you see regularly, you know a lot more. But I've seen aircraft that have come in for service and leave and realize that a month from now they have uh, a, another maintenance event and they're they're asking how come the MRO didn't provide a didn't take care of that well you only asked them to do you know items on the list from one to ten 
in a lot of cases, that's what they're going to do. They don't know the full scope of everything that's coming due on your mm -hmm. aircraft, right? And so I think it's really important for the operators to understand that, you know, you really need to look out even further past whatever maintenance that you're having done mm -hmm. and look at the areas that, you know, you're going to be having work done and figure out, okay, is there other things that make sense? But ultimately that's on you as the, as the customer to work together with the MRO and make sure that those things get done. Yeah. And, and part of being a good salesman too is, so if you were to pull up my camp right now, my personal camp, mm -hmm. have like 285 airplanes in there mm -hmm. of like airplanes that maybe, maybe I don't even touch those airplanes anymore. Some of them. Right. But every, every six months I run a one year do list. Sure. Right? And every six months I'm looking at that going, okay, this guy's going to be coming due here, 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 and here. And I'll call him up be like, Hey, Hey Joe. I see in six months, you got a fire bottle test due. I mm -hmm. see you got this, do that, do. I'm not, I'm not telling them that to be a pain. A lot of the times I'll call them up and be like, oh yeah, yeah, I know I got to do. Sometimes I call them up and tell them that, oh man, I'm really glad you yeah. called me and told me that. <laughs> yeah. oh, I, well, I missed that one or whatever. I'm just a second set of eyes, mm -hmm. right? And sure. when an airplane comes in for an event, I do the same thing. Like I'll run a six month do list out of from that day out because I know the airplane's there now, right? And if if there's some, you know, breakware test or if there's, you know, something that is going to catch them out three months down the road, like, hey, I'd like to at least give you the option to be able to get this done now sure. while it's here. Now, sometimes people defer those items. Like if it's a six-month item and it's due in six months, you're not going to do it, right? Right. But if it's a 24-month item and it's due in three months, like, yeah, you're probably going to want to do that. Right. You know, um, and then people, some people like to keep all their inspections lined up. So some guys might say, no, I'll do that when I get home, but you got to at least give the guys the option to say, Hey, I see that this stuff or other stuff's come and do. And what's your, is, is there a plan for it? Right. Right. Um, and people kind of appreciate that because, well, they know you're paying attention. They know you right. care. Right. I mean, and that's a major part of, of doing what we do. Yeah. What you do. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, cool. I guess kind of shifting gears a little bit. Um, you had mentioned that you've been working on cars for for a long time, and yep. you're actually racing. Tell yep. us a little bit about your race car uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> career. Oh man! All right, so uh, I've been racing for a really long time. I started when I was a little kid. Um, raced motorcycles professionally for a number of years, had a really bad accident at Daytona in 05, broke my back, shattered my collarbone, brain, Jeez. brain hemorrhage, coma for a little while. Oh God. You know, did a little bit of like, you know, paralyzed from the waist down for a few months. Um, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely not recommended for sure. Um, so I, I, uh, I promised my mother that I would never race motorcycles ever again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I probably should have been an attorney um, because she didn't tell me not to race. She yeah. just said motorcycles. Okay. So I, I, that's all, that's what I heard anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so my slogan now is with age comes the cage. 
right? Okay. So I made the transition over to cars in 2015, 14, somewhere around there. Okay. Um, took me a while to rehab and get all the situations squared away. And then I was a crew chief for a, a team based in Daytona, a pro team based in Daytona for a few seasons. And I'm like, similar to when I was being a controller, you know, I don't want to watch out the window. I don't want to watch from pit wall. I want to be out there doing it. I want to mm-hmm. be in the car. So I went and got some, some licenses through the SCCA and, um, I purchased a, uh, a NASCAR race truck that was made for road course racing, raced that all around the Southeast, won a couple championships with that, um, went and got an FIA class C pro license, um, which I've had for several years now. Uh, the challenge with pro racing is it's not about your talent. When you get to that level, it's a hundred percent about the funding that's behind you. Okay. Um, which I've done pretty well in fundraising to this mm-hmm. point to be able to make it to a lot of these pro races. But in order to keep going, in order to get to the next level of my career, um, I'm going to need a significant partner to come on board. Um, I've made a massive capital investment in Almonte Motorsports and in my racing team with transporters and a shop in, in Idaho and... Uh, we just picked up a new BMW M3 uh, race car that we're going to run the full season for WRL in this year. Okay. Um, WRL is 14 to 24-hour endurance races. Oh, wow. So okay. all, all the car racing that I do at this point now is endurance racing. Um, so, like, I'm in town this coming weekend's the Rolex 24 at Daytona. Massive 24-hour race. I didn't realize that's what the 24 st- <laughs> Yeah. For. <laughs> yep. Yep. So that race starts at, um, one or two o'clock on Saturday afternoon and it goes to one or two o'clock on Sunday afternoon and it races all night long, all through the night, Lamborghinis, Porsches, Ferraris, Audis, prototypes, basically any high end sports car that you can pretty much think of Aston Martins. They're all out there running around. Just what is this like a circular track or what, what type of, uh, yeah, so Daytona's got a couple of configurations. Um, for the 24-hour race, we use the road course configuration, uh, which uses the banking and the infield. It's like a hybrid. Okay. Um, I think technically they consider it to be 12 turns, but it's really only like seven. Um, really high speed, not super technical, um, mostly a speed track, mm-hmm. um, but a really, really good time. I mean... The banking at Daytona is incredible. And if you don't do at least 80, you're steering up the track to try and keep the car on the track. And then as soon as you get to 80, it's weird. The steering wheel just kind of goes straight and you just hold the wheel straight and the car just goes right around the banking. And it's the G forces at like 160, 170 miles an hour are really really, really intense. I mean, you're just being forced into the seat and the way that the banking is, you really can't see very far in front of you um, because you're basically looking down into the track, Yeah, you know, and then we have like uh, sun banners too. So like combined with all that, I can definitely see why the NASCARs have massive pileups. I mean, they're inches from each other. And if something happens like there, you don't really have a chance to react to it. Mm. So, um, but from a road course standpoint, like we're not supposed to be touching each other. Right. You know, I, uh, I've always seen 
racing as like if you can get around somebody without touching them there's far more skill in that mm-hmm. i mean i think everybody's got their own opinions on racing um but uh i like to not touch people you know <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd probably go that route if i raced as well yeah i mean the mx5s <laughs> the miatas the mx5s are fun for for bump drafting and if you don't bump draft in like an mx5 you're not gonna you, you won't win there's no way you're gonna win um, because the leaders are going to just link together and check out. Mm. Um, but that's like a super low horsepower car, right? When you start going to a Porsche or a BMW or something with some significant power, mm. um, I mean, the draft is still important, but it's not nearly as important as like, you know, the angry pack of bees that is a Mazda Miata running around mm-hmm. the track. You know, I mean, those guys are like daisy chained together and yeah. it's like impossible to get away from each other. <laughs> so, um, so what is, so you're, you're personally one person is racing for 24 hours or you have a team yeah so it's a team okay um anywhere between three to five drivers okay uh for the 24 hour for the 24 hour race uh it's definitely advisable to have four okay um i mean after so there's a lot of people that are always like oh racing is not a real sport you're not a real athlete blah blah, blah whatever well, i 100 percent challenge any person that ever says that to get in a race car and go drive it for two hours you're so exhausted by yeah. the point you get out of that car not only are you dehydrated <laughs> but cockpit temperatures are running like 140 150 degrees right i make beef jerky at 150. yeah right <laughs> I mean, we have all these environmental systems inside the car to try and keep our core body temperatures down. There's a cooler that sits on the side of the car and inside the car with ice and water inside of it. And the tubes flow through the shirt and through the helmet to like keep your core body temperature down. I mean, you get out of the car, I'm the color of a lobster when I get out of the car. I mean, I'm literally red. I look like I've just got out of a frying pan or whatever. And like, I'll start dumping water on me and that's just evaporating as soon as it hits my head. Just, you know. Well, I think also like mentally racing for that long, Mm -hmm. that's a long time to be that like in the zone, right? right? Like it's extremely dangerous extremely high speeds like to be in the zone for that long has got to be unique yeah so so because some of these races are 24 hours you'll have you'll have weather yeah you'll drive through the night so like the most challenging thing that i've ever had was it was about three o'clock in the morning um it started downpouring raining really hard um you know so and i had already been in the car for a couple hours at that point is it possible to fall asleep behind the wheel of a race car? Yes, it is. Okay, I can officially tell you, no matter how hard you're sending it, it is possible to yeah. doze off behind the wheel. It's a weird sense of calm that comes over you when you when you really start pushing a vehicle to that limit. I mean, because you kind of have to go to that calm mode. Mm-hmm. Frantic is just not going to do it, and you really shouldn't be frantic anyway. Yeah. Um, so, it was, yeah, it was like 3 o'clock at night. It started raining pretty hard. There was a lot of traffic around me. Um, I'd been in the car for a couple hours. I was already pretty tired. I mean, thankfully nothing bad happened, but like I can I can literally think of a time if there's ever a time where I can say I wanted to be out of a race car, like I wanted to be out of that car. Yeah. Because it was it was so mentally taxing that when I, I think when I finally got out of the car, I just kind of sat on pit wall for like five minutes, just kind of decompressing, like letting all that out of (laughs) me of 
because you're so hyper-focused for so long that like I felt even when I was sitting there on the pit wall after all this, I'm like, I'm still focusing on driving right now. Like I need to unfocus my mind. Yeah. Which is a, a, such a strange yeah, bizarre, yeah, thing to do. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you got to go and try and go back to the RV and sleep for a little while and you got <laughs> running around on the track. And then not only that, but like, you know, you're getting ready to go get back in the car and go do it all over again. Right. right? So it's not, you don't really get any sleep. Mm-hmm. So in a 24 hour race, you're kind of awake for 30 hours. Yeah. 34 hours, you know, because all the fanfare stuff starts at like 8 a.m. and you got driver autographs and all the other stuff that you sure. got to do. So like, and then you, I mean, you just try to find time to rest mm-hmm. when you can. You don't really sleep during that race. I mean, there might be some guys that are complete psychopaths that can <laughs> that can get some sleep. You know, lots of respect for those guys. Yeah. You know, that's just a different level if you're able to go to sleep. Um, <laughs> and so that race is coming up this weekend. That's this so it's weekend. like five days from now. Yep. What, do you, what do you do to get prepared for that race? So a lot of time on the simulator. Mm-hmm. Um, we run on iRacing really a lot, um, which in the last couple of years has been a great tool too because there was times where we all weren't allowed to go to the track too mm. and we all just kind of got together on the iRacing and ran um, to kind of stay sharp. Mm-hmm. How close to, like how close is that simulator to real life in, in regards to the equipment and the visuals? I mean, we try to obviously make it as close as we can because, mm-hmm. you know, perfect practice makes yeah, perfect. Sure. But, um, I mean, we're running a VR headset with head tracking. Okay. Um, there's this thing called a butt kicker onto the seat that gives you like vibration feedback. Mm-hmm. We don't have any movement in our sim as of current. So there's no like two or three axis, which we're working on that. Um, if, uh, if a sim sponsor wants to come on board, we'd love that. Uh, maybe doff reality. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but then the, uh, as far as like the haptics go, um, we're running a, uh, it's called a direct drive wheel, which is basically a big electric motor that gives, I think 20 Newton meters of force feedback. Force, yeah. I mean, enough that if you hit a wall, like if you go off and you hit a wall, you need to let go of the wheel cause it'll break your fingers. Like Jeez. it'll, the wheel will snap and it'll, it'll break your fingers. Like it's really strong. Wow. So like, and you're supposed to do that in a real race car anyway. So like, that's kind of back to that. Perfect practice makes perfect. Right. Like even if I make a mistake in the race car, I, in the simulator, I do the exact same thing that I would in the real race car, which is this hand comes across my chest and goes under the belt right here. My head goes down, locks out my Hans and my feet come back against the seat. So it's all one, one motion. Once you realize you're a passenger to basically lock out all your stuff so that your head doesn't travel forward. I mean, your, your Hans stops your head from traveling any further forward than like this, right? but all that stuff still stretches in an impact, right? So if you can already get it out to the point where it's, and then your arms aren't flailing around, like if you flip, you want everything locked right? so that you don't start flailing around, breaking arms. I mean, if an arm goes out, there's a window window. net, but I mean, and it's not really possible for an arm to get out a window, but I mean, just lock it down so that you don't have yeah. you don't have any issues. And I've had some really big wrecks in cars, and you you walk away from it. I think my biggest my biggest fear, if I had one in a race car, would be fire. You know, having having an impact where you're incapacitated or unconscious or trapped in the vehicle, and then a fire happens. Mm-hmm. You know, but we have we have fire systems and stuff in the car to yeah. be able to extinguish that. 
Um, but I think as a driver, like if there's ever a fear that's ever been anywhere in the back of my mind, it's always been the fire. But I think that comes from me racing motorcycles for so long. Like fire is not a concern on a motorcycle, you know, like if you have a fire yeah. on a motorcycle, you just drop the thing, you walk away, you know? <laughs> so being, being in a car, I do sometimes I feel somewhat claustrophobic, right? Because you're in this like six point harness with a Hans and you get this window net and you're in a contained and it's contained right. with a cage all around you and all this stuff. And you can't really like turn your head and look. I mean, I feel like sometimes if I could just like lean a little bit to the left or the right, I could go faster through a corner, but like you're, you're yeah, locked in. Yeah, yeah. And even the seats are full containment. There's like these halos that come around by the side of the, of the seat. So, I mean, racing safety has come incredibly long ways mm -hmm. is really imp incredible how hard you can crash a car and still be perfectly fine. Yeah. You know, which is, I, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's and great. So you don't race motorcycles anymore. Do you ride motorcycles anymore? So I just recently sold my last sport bike that I had, my last street bike. It was a 2014 Yamaha R1. Idaho wasn't really super conducive to having sport bikes mm -hmm. out there. It's more of a dirt bike territory. Um, sure. I do still have some dirt bikes, but I think even this year that I think I'm going to sell the dirt bikes too. So I'm going to be completely off, completely off two wheels, which I'm, I'm sure if my mom's listening, she'd be happy about yeah, that. So I'm sure. Yeah. And like last summer I broke my orbital bone in my face on a dirt bike. I just two wheels. <laughs> I think I should just listen to the voices in my yeah. head that are telling me to get rid of all this stuff. So Four, four wheels, a cage, fire suit, fire bottle, safety equipment, like racing cars is far, far safer. And like the biggest issue with a motorcycle, especially on the street, is I don't know what the guy next to me is going to exactly. do. Exactly. That, that would be the biggest worry for me. You know, we're, we're down here in Florida and there's a lot of people on on bikes. But, you know, you look over to the car next to you and they're down in their phone. And it's not about what you're doing. It All it takes is somebody to you know, run the red light or rear end you and, oh, and you're yeah. toast, you yep. know? Um, and so that's, yeah, a scary part about it. But, yeah. Uh, They're a lot of fun. The performance of a motorcycle is yeah. way, anybody that's never ridden a street bike, like a sport street bike, they, they don't understand how fast they are. I yeah. mean, they're incredibly fast, mm -hmm. like faster than anything else on the street. Like there's no Ferrari that's going as fast as right. that sport bike is. And you go down the showroom and spend 10 grand and walk away with it, yeah. you know, <laughs> which is like crazy for like 18 year old kids to have that much power, mm -hmm. you know, but good times though. Yeah. Really sure. Good times. Sure. So yep. you said you're, you're looking for, uh, for sponsors on the, um, race car side of things. Um, what do you, what do you look for in a, in a sponsor? Yeah. So I actually consider them to be partners, mm -hmm. right? Um, because I'm, I'm providing them a service as well. So what I do for my partners is that the racetrack is a B2B and a B2C incubator, right? So other sponsors, other partners of other teams are also at the track in the hospitality area as well. So like, let's say, for example, let's say Pepsi wanted to come on board with me and let's say Pepsi's trying to sell more Pepsi to Publix, whatever. Right. And let's say Publix is sponsoring another car, right? Mm -hmm. I can facilitate a conversation between Publix and Pepsi that's going to happen in that B2B incubator right there at the track because those two CEOs are there to have that conversation, right? They're, 
um i mean that's just one small side of it mm-hmm. the other side of it too is um let's say let's say you're craftsman right craftsman wrenches or whatever and and you you want to sell more of your craftsman wrenches to lowe's right well Lowe's, Lowe's brings their executives in for a weekend because you're craftsmen, you bring Lowe's executives to the track for the weekend, right? Like you're like, Hey, I have this awesome hospitality thing. Lowe's executive, come on in. And and this is what we're going to host for you for the weekend. Like this Mm -hmm. is what we do for fun. And they come out to the track and that's their, their unique experience that craftsman puts them through because craftsman wants to sell them more wrenches. Right. So they, they, and I can even facilitate further conversations than that too. Like I don't really want to get into the proprietary stuff that I do, but basically I always make sure that any partner that comes on board with me has an ROI of at least five X of what they spend to come racing with me. So if you, if, if you were to spend $150,000 for the year, I'm going to make sure you get five X of that back in business mm-hmm. and I'm going to work my rear end off <laughs> to make sure that that happens. Not only not, a, not, and not just at the track, like outside of the track too. Right. right? And so, you had mentioned like social media and stuff. So yeah. how, how do you, how do you promote your partners in that way? Yep. So, um, Almonte Motorsports partnered with a company in Idaho called sticker status. Sticker Status is a Ceramic Pro Elite dealer, and they're also a vehicle wrap, paint protection film, tint, um, basically an advertising company, mm-hmm. right? Because as a motor, somebody in motorsports, you kind of have to know that you're an advertising company that just happens to own a race team. Right. Like on the professional level, yeah. you're really more advertising for your partners and providing a service for your partners. Racing is just a byproduct of what happens of all that stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's really where my main focus is, is the business development side for my partners. And then obviously the racing happens because of that other stuff is going on in order, in order for us to be able to be out there racing, we have to have the partners being successful and getting a good return on their investment or they wouldn't keep coming back. Mm-hmm. It's got to make financial sense for a company. And I don't ever approach a company. And there's a lot of companies out there that are race teams that are just like, Hey, I'm going to put your, I'm going to advertise for you on the hood of my car. Oh, okay, great. That's exposure. Right. Like what exposure, what is that going to do for me though? Mm. Like, so it really depends on what the company is looking for too. Like if they're looking for just exposure, I mean, we can, we can do that. That's not a, that's, that's easy. Right. Right. If they're looking for B2B or B2C, we can do that too. If they're looking for, if they're looking to penetrate into a new market that maybe they haven't had any successes in, this is another way of being able to do it. Sure. Right. And really being able to provide your employees, your clients and your potential business, potential future business partners, a unique experience something that they're going to continue to talk about, something they're going to want to keep coming back to do again is is the whole core of, of what we do, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you can literally take a guy and walk him around through the garages and he can be standing right next to some of these super high-end sports cars 
talking to the drivers. You can sit him up on top of the war wagon. You know, the race can be happening. He can put the headset on. He can feel like he's yeah. a part of the team. Stuff like that. People don't get to do that on a normal basis, right? So, and then that guy goes home and he's telling all of his friends about it. He's excited about it. And the next time you call him, he's going to answer the phone again. Sure. Right? Because, hey, that's... Hey, Greg, I had a great experience with Greg at that yeah. race. Like, oh, hey, Greg, what's up? And then you guys are buddies now. Right. And that changes the dynamic, too, of of how business is done. So, I don't know. I Good I, good opportunity yeah, for, uh, solid, for somebody to come in solid, and work with you guys. Solid opportunity to come yeah. in and work with us. And we have a, a phenomenal team. And I'm not the only pro driver that's in our team. Um so we've we've partnered with a couple other guys, um, and we're we're working on inking those deals. So I can't say names right now, but I can tell you that um, I know for certain that we do have one uh, one pro driver that'll be with us this year, um, in addition to myself, who is um, an ex Indy car and NASCAR driver. Okay, um, very cool, and is is very prominent um, in all the circles. So his book of business too comes with that, right? Mm -hmm. So him and all the people he knows comes with that on top of that. You never know what is going to come of a network when you start weaving the web, right? And what kind of business can come from that. And I've seen just phenomenal deals, phenomenal business deals happen at the racetrack where people have done really well yeah making those connections well very cool so well, good luck in, in this you. race this next week <laughs> thank, and, you, uh, thank you yeah looking forward to seeing how that goes for you yeah um last kind of topic i wanted to to hit on was we had talked a little bit and i know that you were on chris's podcast regarding um some of your work and and uh investing in cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and so um can you give me a little bit of a rundown of, of your experience in that? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how it relates to aviation or how you see some of this technology and some of these trends maybe finding their way into aviation. Sure, sure. So I got I got into crypto in 2010 or 2011, somewhere around there, mm-hmm. right around the same time that I uh, started working with Starport in Sanford and... Uh, a buddy who was mining it in his dorm room at MIT, and I always thought he was a pretty smart guy. You know, yeah. he's going to MIT, so I'm like, all right, I guess I'll I'll listen to you. And at that point, he was getting like almost a hundred Bitcoin a day from his mining rig, which hundred Bitcoin a day. <laughs> That's yeah, wild. Yeah, he was getting a lot. I don't yeah. know. I don't know that it was a hundred, and I'm sure the fact checkers will be like, ah, oh, the hash rate was <laughs> Not never possible, that, was yeah. never that high. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Maybe when Satoshi first came. No, but uh, so um, look, crypto, aviation, racing, like all three of those things for me, they've always kind of been one and the same because they always, they've all have speed. They all have like a certain level of sexiness to them, Mm -hmm. right? And, And there's something different happening every day in all three of those, right? Um I I never really, until probably maybe like five or six years ago, never really considered the deep possibility of where aviation and crypto can be tied together. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can be very linked. Um, in fact, one of the things that we're working on right now, um, and then when I say we, um, I mean me as a separate entity, is how to um, NFT property. 
real estate, how to NFT jets, anything. So at the core, anything that is unique can be an NFT, mm-hmm. right? So let's say you have these two, you have these two business cards, right? Let's say they're, let's say these are each a dollar, right? You got this dollar here and you get this dollar here, but let's say, um, let's say George Clooney signs this one. This one stays fungible. Now this one's non-fungible. This becomes a non-fungible dollar because it's a collectible. It's it's unique now. Mm-hmm. It's still a dollar, but it's unique. So like that's how kind of how NFTs work. And I think a lot of people have seen these JPEGs and they're like, oh, a million dollars for a JPEG. Like what? It's not it's not the art. It's the code behind the art. It's the it's what's going on in the background of the NFT that makes it valuable, mm-hmm. which is where we get into that conversation about making a jet an NFT, because let's say I want to purchase your jet from you, right? You can literally digitally send me the property rights mm-hmm. of that jet. I fund, I fund it and it's done. It's a done right. deal, right? You don't need all these other intermediaries, all this other stuff. And if we could get, I think the biggest struggle that we find right now is that, okay, so like real estate, for example, there's a deed to property title, all that stuff. There's companies and stuff involved with doing that, right? And that stuff's not really digital right now. Right. Um, it's just it's just a time thing, making yeah. that transition, getting people used to. I, I can remember when people were like, oh, we now accept Visa, MasterCard, and Discover. And you're like, why would you want that digital money? Like, yeah. people were like, I'm not doing that. I, mean, I remember there's a big pushback for credit cards back, you know, X number of years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, who the heck has cash in their wallet? Right. Yeah. So, well, I, th- I think the the way I'm I'm looking at it, and I'm you know not an expert in you know crypto or NFTs, but right now there's a lot of there's a lot of like hype around NFTs, and I think that a lot some of the it's really the technology that's behind a lot of these things mm-hmm. that you know there's hype around these you know images and you know JPEGs and stuff like that. Um, but I think that. A lot of that might go by the wayside as, you know, this technology comes in and actually replaces some of the infrastructure and things that, you know, are in our day-to-day lives now, like you said, like ownership of a house or of an aircraft. And um, some of the other things that we're looking at is around, you know, and I have experience in like electronic um, uh, aircraft maintenance records, Mm -hmm. right? And so right now, for the most part, even still today, everybody's relying on paper records and a signature. And, um, you know, in reality, it's not that difficult to go back and alter this information if mm-hmm. you wanted to. It doesn't happen all that often. But buying parts, buying an aircraft, really understanding, okay, what has been, has this aircraft been maintained? You know, what's the what's the life of this part? I think that there's a really big opportunity to bring some of this technology into the space and replace some of the legacy paper and processes and things that that we've dealt with forever. Well, here in Florida, you know, I won't say any operators names, but there's been uh one particular instance I can think of of an operator that was putting parts on an airplane that didn't belong on the airplane. Yeah. Okay. I don't think yep. I need to say names. Like no, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
NFTing parts because there's traceability, yellow tag, red tag, whatever. Right. Um, I mean, being able to trace that part basically back to the mine where the metal came out of is always been a part of all of our aviation parts, right? And putting that into the smart contract of the NFT makes sure that you're not gonna lose paperwork with that part, first of all. Second of all, it makes sure that the part is actually a genuine, legitimate part that belongs on there. And all the times and life cycles of all that part would go right with the NFT when you pull it off the airplane, right? Mm -hmm. So like if the whole airplane database is kept in the blockchain, right? You move, you remove a wheel off that airplane and let's say it goes back to Avial for, for ref, for refurb, right? Well, that wheel is still the same NFT, right? All that traceability, all that's all still there in that, in that right. blockchain, right? So it, it, I, I think from a records aircraft records standpoint, the blockchain is absolutely where we need to go. Sure. For sure. Um, and it you know it can't be hacked it can't be manipulated yeah um and let's say let's say there's a let's say there's a dom who's doing something shady and he's going back and he's pencil whipping inspections well it's not going to fly on the blockchain mm-hmm. you're going to be able to see that, that that he just did that on the blockchain so from a regulatory standpoint too it makes sure that everybody is doing the things they need to do when they need to do them right and not going back and and just updating them with erroneous dates sure because it's too easy to do that at this point yeah oh i forgot to do that inspection six months ago oh yeah yeah yeah. no no i did it i did it i'm gonna (laughs) sign it off like eh, okay right yeah yeah so i think that there's a ton of opportunity there i see it going in that direction Mm -hmm. down the road i think there's also a huge number of obstacles uh to actually get there um whether it's the people, the technology, the current platforms that are out there, um, there's a lot to there's a lot to consider. Mm-hmm. Probably be a couple of hours of conversation too. Oh yeah, <laughs> to uncover all of those things. Yeah. But um, I think it's it's uh, it's cool that we're thinking about it now. It's cool that to see that this type of technology is being used in mm-hmm. other industries and it's being used effectively. Um, which tells me like there's a real opportunity for our space. It's just one of those things like, like anything else. It's it's time, um, and uh, and we'll we'll see where it goes. The other the other side of that industry too, when we're talking about crypto and aviation, that maybe people have considered. Um, you know, there's been a lot of people that have made a lot of money with with cryptocurrency, sure. and they want to spend it. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to spend those gains. They want to enjoy the fruits of their labor, so right. to speak. Right. I I can think of literally four guys that I know of that have purchased, um, that have purchased jets with their gains mm-hmm. from cryptocurrency, whether it be Bitcoin or Cardano or whatever, or Ethereum or whatever they made their money in. Right. Right. Um, and you know, those guys would like, those guys have aircraft maintenance. They need to get done too, you know? Sure. Just <laughs> give you a ring. Just, just saying. <laughs> just saying. Like, you know, that can be that can be possible. Sure. In the future. Yeah. You know, it's it's just another form of payment. It's mm-hmm. no different than taking Visa or Mastercard. It is just a, it is a mental shift into. And actually, you know, I I firmly believe, and this is backed in science, that the cryptocurrencies are more secure than your Visa or your Mastercard. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, far more. I can walk by your wallet and take an RFID scan of your wallet. And now I have all your information. Right. You, you're not doing that with crypto. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just not possible. Sure. So there's a lot of security to it. I think it's mostly that people are afraid of what they don't know and they don't like what they don't know. Right. So because there's, I mean, in the United States, I think there's only, there's only 20 million people in the United States that are holding cryptocurrency at the moment. Um, right. out of 273 or 300 million or however many people live in this country. Sure. So it's a really small, yeah. Really small well, portion. I think as I think with, with anything, as it becomes more prevalent in just your mainstream, uh, you know, life or dealing with people that you're buying things from on a regular basis. And as that becomes just more and more mainstream, I think it becomes more acceptable and it starts making its way into the, into, you know, the business world in a, in a bigger way. And so I guess we'll, we'll just see where, where it all goes. Yeah. But, um, it's exciting times. Yeah. A little, a little scary, but sure. more exciting than anything else. I yeah. mean, the space is so new. Mm -hmm. And and the thing that's interesting too is, you know, we're still kind of pioneers in aviation too. Sure. Right. I mean, Orville and Wilbur flew in what nineteen oh nine. Fact checkers, yeah. get me again. Get at me. Get at me, <laughs> fact checkers. You know. Um, but uh, I mean, look, we're at a little over a hundred years of human powered flight. Yeah. Right. That's in the in the scheme of humanity in general. We are not even a blip right. in aviation. Yeah. You know, and we're already putting people in space and talking about going to Mars and all that within a hundred years. Right. I mean, what's the next hundred got? Mm -hmm. That's exciting. That's yeah. super exciting. And same thing goes for, for crypto. Like, what does that have? What's coming in the next few years there? Same thing goes for racing. It's going electric. There's like, this is a great time to be alive. Mm -hmm. I mean, technology doubles every six months. So you never really know where that's going to go. Sure. You know, we got boom supersonic with like their, their stuff happening. And I just, it's, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's awesome. Yeah. You know, I think there's some people that are like, oh, it's a terrible time to be alive and all that, <laughs> but it's what you make it right. Like I, I, I think, I think there's definitely things in society that can be going a heck of a lot better. Yeah, sure. You know, like, but that side apart from <laughs> it, like aviation and all the other stuff is going phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's going really, really well, you know, yeah. and I, uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, for sure. So, well, awesome. I appreciate you, uh, coming on and, and chatting with us today. Yeah. Um, I guess where can, uh, where can people find you? Yeah. So, um, if you for Western aircraft, um, I I highly suggest you check out westair.com. Um, that has all of our capabilities list on there. Um, it's got a lot of really good pictures of our company website on there. You can get in touch with our MRT team on there. There's also an app that you can download in the smartphone store for uh, iPhone and Android. Okay. It's the Western Aircraft app. Um, so if you go in the store, you can just download the app right there. We're working on adding additional stuff to that, but that's constantly being in development. But cool. um, that allows you to also get in touch with us through MRT and other stuff. Um, and then for me personally, um, you can find me on um, on Instagram, um, uh, at AlexAlmonte9. Um, 
also on LinkedIn. You can find me just under Alex Almonte on there. Yeah, um, I will put a link to to all this stuff in okay. the description. So. Okay, awesome. Um, I will I will say that uh, I just like to give one quick plug to one of the foundations that I raced for. Okay. Um, so it's it's Blue Help. Uh, Blue Help is a police and law enforcement uh, suicide prevention foundation. So last year, uh, 250 officers committed suicide. It's an epidemic. Mm-hmm. It's it's really terrible. These guys see some of the worst stuff you could ever imagine, or maybe you can't even imagine. Yeah. And then they have to go home to their families. And there is a culture <clears throat> within the police force of kind of that macho mentality mm-hmm. where, hey, you know, if something's bothering you, you don't talk about it. You just bury it in the box in the back of your mind. And a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys need help. Yeah. You know, they need they need our support. And um, the work that we do to help families that have had an officer fall. Um, and then there's also the outreach that we do to the police communities to to sit down and talk with those officers and give them kind of, I hate to use the word safe space, um, but give them a place where they feel comfortable with sharing what's, what's basically eating them alive inside and making them think about considering ending their lives. And that's just um, every police officer I've ever talked to has gotten into being a police officer because they want to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, society has attacked them pretty heavily over the last few years. And, you know, when things go south, the first fall, phone call you make is to 911. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what your stance on the police is, if they're, if you're in a situation, you're going to call the police for help, right? Yeah. And and we want these guys to be there. They're the the thin. The reason they call it the thin blue line is because it's the the line between civilization and chaos. You know, without those guys there, it's chaos. Yeah. So we and you know we we appreciate everything they do. And if you go to bluehelp.org, um, your every donation that you make to that society is is a huge help. I know Karen Solomon would be extremely thankful uh, for any donations that come in. So, awesome. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. I had, yeah. uh, I think it was a week or two ago, I saw an awful headline. It was of a husband and wife. They were both uh, police officers and both committed suicide and just like shot, you know, shocking. And uh, I have a bunch of friends who are police officers and um, you know, down here, uh, a few up in New York. And it's just some of the stuff that, that they go through the stuff that they see, the stuff that they go through every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they come back, you know, they come home and they have a family and they have a normal life. And it's like, how, how do you, how do you separate those two? And how do you right. get comfortable? And, and, um, yeah, having a place to go when you're, you're feeling in that way is, uh, is huge. So that's awesome to, to support them. And yeah. we'll, uh, We'll definitely add a link for for that and awesome. for the show. So. Awesome. Well, cool. Um, yeah, thank you for uh, for coming on, and uh, we'll do it again one day. Absolutely, I really appreciate you having me, Greg. Yeah, sounds thank good. You. Thank you. Thanks.